Well, amen. What a wonderful night God's given us already, and certainly grateful for your presence here. We have a number of things I want to share with you as we're uh, getting into the, the message portion this evening. Of course, today was Friend Day, and God gave us a number of visitors, and we're certainly thankful uh, for all the folks that were here. We're exposed to the Cleveland Baptist Church, and I want to thank you for many of you working very diligently to try to get family members here and friends and coworkers and neighbors and, and uh, that sort of thing. What a blessed day God gave us. And uh, we wanted to uh, share just a couple of more decisions that were made of folks trusting Christ as their Savior. And we're thankful for Alyssa Armanderes, who at the end of the service trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. I think she was guest with, um, with you guys, right? Yeah, definitely. That's great, Carla. And a friend of hers from high school. And so that's a blessing. And then uh, Stanley Linares also uh, trusted Christ as his Savior after the service. And here's what I think is special. Brother Adrian got a chance to lead him to Christ. What a blessing that is. And uh, Stanley is uh, Yessi Torres's brother. And he's been coming for probably a year or so. And uh, Brother Adrian uh, cornered him and got him into an office and shared the gospel with him. And he trusted Christ as his Savior and had an opportunity to meet me after the service. Or I had an opportunity to meet him after the service. And uh, that was an encouragement, of course, in addition to Samantha, uh, Cisco, who trusted Christ. We mentioned that this morning. And then young Gianna Fusco. And so we're grateful uh, for those decisions. And that's what it's all about. That's why we put effort into a day like uh, this particular day is so that we can see people trust Christ as their Savior and have an opportunity to preach the gospel. And then I also wanted to uh, say congratulations to uh, Dustin and Desiree Brady in the birth of their third child. Little Ella Rose was born on April the 7th, I believe that's right, Thursday, uh, April the 7th, and she weighed six pounds and 14 ounces. And so she's child number three to Dustin and Desiree. And so we say congratulations to them. And to Grandma and Grandpa both, right, on both sides here tonight, watching the other two sing in the choir. Wasn't that a blessing to hear the children sing? I could listen to children sing, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed all day long. I hope that encouraged your heart. And that certainly was a blessing. Of course, that's in preparation uh, for this coming Lord's Day. I want to uh, remind you this coming Wednesday, we'll all be together in here. And uh, typically on Wednesday night, we're in our uh, different classes or various classes. We'll still have child care for birth through four years old, but kindergarten uh, all the way through the oldest among us will be here in the sanctuary, and uh, we will observe the Lord's Supper together, and that will be a very, very special time and a very sober time as we, again, reflect on Christ's sacrifice for us. This is, of course, the week of his passion in which he was, um, in which he was crucified, and, of course, by the time we get together next Sunday, uh, he's not dead anymore, right? He's, he's alive, and uh, we're certainly grateful for the opportunity that we have to celebrate the resurrection. Next Sunday, of course, will be a very, very special day, and I want to encourage you to get here early and, uh, and to be prepared for somebody to be sitting in your seat. Uh, that sometimes is a bummer, right? You come in and you think to yourself, That's, does, I thought my name was on that seat, but it's not. It's not on that seat, and, uh, and we're looking forward to having lots of guests and lots of visitors. We had a a uh, direct mail that went out this last week. Uh, I think we mailed to 10,000 homes here in the west side of Cleveland. And uh, most of those folks will either receive those uh, on Monday or have already received them. And uh, talking about Resurrection Sunday and the celebration of our Lord and Savior being alive. And we have some special things for the children next Sunday. I heard, I heard that a little lamb is going to be on the property. And uh, I wasn't so sure about that. But they convinced me. They said it's going to be great. We'll keep them outside. The children can come and get their pictures taken with them, and they can pet them. And, and I like that because it's a reminder, right? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the whole world. And so I think that'll be here next Sunday. Uh, we also need some able-bodied people to park across the street. And we have secured American Road, south side only. And so again, if you can help us, if you're able to walk great distances, and uh, it's really not great distances, but that wouldn't be an issue for you. If you'll help us by parking across the street, that'll alleviate some parking here on the lot. And we have had Easter's in the past. Now again, with two services, it's probably not gonna be as much of an issue. But we've had Easter's in the past in which people have pulled on the lot, they couldn't find a parking spot, and they pulled off the lot. And we don't want that to happen. Uh, we want folks, everyone, to be able to find a parking spot and to be, uh, be able to, to be here in this place and to worship the Lord with us. And so let's pray for a great Sunday. And you come, you come expecting not just to listen and to enjoy the service, but you come expecting uh, to greet someone and to have a smile on your face and to be a blessing to those that the Lord sends our way this coming Sunday. I do need to meet with all of our deacons after the service tonight, and we'll take care of that. We'll meet in, eight room, uh, in the HBI chapel. And so, again, if you can help us by being uh, there when the service is dismissed, we'll do our best maybe to dismiss you just a little bit early so we can get that meeting started. Proverbs chapter number 6 tonight is where we are. Proverbs chapter number 6 this evening. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 12, and we'll read down through verse number 19. What is a... Pretty familiar passage of Scripture to most folks who know their Bible, Proverbs 6, uh, especially towards the tail end of this particular text. But the Bible says in verse number 12, A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes, he speaketh with his feet, he teacheth with his fingers. Frowardness is in his heart, he deviseth mischief continually, he soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. Here's the familiar portion, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Uh, verse number 12 there, where the Bible says a naughty person. Uh, many Bible scholars believe that it's literally saying there that a, that, a, that a man that is like Belial, almost like a satanic person, someone who is under the influence, under the control of Satan, a naughty person, a wicked man, and then it describes what he looks like. Tonight, with the Lord's help, I'd like to preach to you a message that I've entitled, A Wicked Man and a Holy God. A wicked man and a holy God. Father, would you bless our time together this evening. Help us as we, Lord, enter into these next few moments and as we preach your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as a church family week after week. What a great morning you gave us. Thank you for many, many guests and visitors and for souls saved and for folks encouraged and helped. And certainly, Lord, we look forward to, with expectation to next Sunday, the celebration of the resurrection. Lord, we look forward even to Wednesday as we gather around your table and as we commemorate and remember your sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, this will be a special week, but help us tonight. Help us not to look ahead, but to focus in on what is before us here in Proverbs chapter number 6 this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think most of us would agree that we are living in a wicked generation. Well, that's not a stretch to say that, and, and really that should not really be a great surprise to those who know God's Word. You see, Proverbs 22 and verse number 15 tells us that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. 
Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. In other words, the curse of sin in this world, um, it, 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 it begins to make its mark at the earliest ages because it is bound in the hearts of even the smallest children to cause trouble and to go their own way and to act in a rebellious manner. Think about how quickly the curse of sin took over the world. We discover, of course, the first sin there in Genesis chapter number three, and we discover the curse that God pronounced upon this world and upon man and upon woman as a result of this particular sin. And then we come just three chapters later to Genesis chapter number six, and God's assessment is that every imagination of man was only evil continually. Now, I understand that there's a lengthy period of time as far as, as, far as just the, the years that go by between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6, but I think you sort of get the idea, don't you, that, that it wasn't very long before uh, the curse of sin begins to make a profound impact upon this world, devastating lives and hurting the very heart of Almighty God. Now, as dispensationalists, we believe we are living in the last days. And the Bible is clear that these days will be characterized by a hastening toward more and more wickedness in the hearts of men. So in other words, we, we look back over history and we see what has unfolded and what has happened. And yet as we look down the, the line, as Bible believers were sitting here saying, things aren't going to get any better, they're only going to get worse. We remind you of what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3. Beginning in verse number one, the Bible says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. A few verses later in that same chapter, in verse number 13, Paul writes, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. As I was preparing for this message and thinking about the fact that we're living in a wicked generation, there are wicked men all around us, wicked women all around us, began to think of just in recent days some of the trouble that we have seen as it relates to wicked men and wicked lifestyles. And no doubt we have seen a continued rise and celebration of what I, would, what I would declare to you to be abominable practices. Abominable practices. I just point you in the realm of, of a hot-button topic in our world today, which is the transgender movement. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Thursday, March the 31st, was a dark day in our country. It was a dark day because it was designated by the powers that be as the transgender day of visibility, as if they need any more visibility, as if they need any more recognition, as if they need any more praise and applause. It feels like every time we turn around, there's another day dedicated to celebrating some of these things. On that day, our president released this statement. I can, only, I can only share just a little bit of it with you for the sake of time. But he said, to everyone celebrating Transgender Day of Visibility, I want you to know that your president sees you. The first lady, the vice president, the second gentleman, and my entire administration see you for who you are, made in the image of God. 
and deserving of dignity, respect, and support. Now, I agree they are made in the image of God, but they're resisting the image that God made them to be. So, so understand that I'm not disagreeing with the fact that as human beings are made in the image of God, but by taking on this persona that they have taken on, they are resisting, they are rejecting, uh, they are bucking against what God created them to be. Therefore, they ought not to be celebrated. He goes on to say, on this day and every day, we recognize the resilience, strength, and joy of transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. We celebrate the activism and determination that have fueled the fight for transgender equality. We acknowledge the adversity and discrimination that the transgender community continues to face across our nation, around our world. I, Joseph R. Biden Jr., President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim March 31st, 2022 as Transgender Day of Visibility. I call upon all Americans to join us in lifting up the lives and voices of transgender people throughout our nation and to work toward eliminating discrimination against all transgender, gender nonconforming and non-binary people and all people. That's a statement given from the White House. Now think about how far we've come. Now think about literally how far we've come, how Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that makes it sound better than, than it is. Think about how far we have fallen. That these types of things are happening. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be 43 in June. And I remember being a boy. And I remember this lifestyle was not celebrated just 30 years ago. It wasn't celebrated at all, period. You say, what are you, what are you, what are you proclaiming? What do you think we need to do? Does that mean we need to go to war? No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. I'm just simply, we need to go to war against that ideology. We don't war against people. We need to preach the gospel is what we need to do. But I'm just simply saying we're seeing a rise in the celebration of this abominable lifestyle. I'm thinking to myself that in recent days we've seen companies once known for family entertainment now embracing the anti-family movement. Look no further than Disney's reaction to a new Florida law. Now think about this. Their reaction to a new Florida law that prohibits sexual discussion in grades kindergarten through third grade, and they're up in arms about it. They're, they're fired up about it. The teachers can't talk about these types of things in a classroom for kindergarten through third grade students. It's the world we're living in. This was a, at one time the world's foremost family company providing family entertainment for children the world over. And they have committed themselves in this fight. They have committed themselves to making more movies and more television programs and more entertainment featuring characters that, that go in that direction. It's the world we're living in. I'm thinking in recent days we've seen the invasion of a sovereign nation by what we can only describe as a madman walking into a country, and we've seen even in recent days some of the slaughter and some of the destruction that they've left in their wake. Just this last week, we, we learned of a mass shooting in Sacramento, leaving six people dead and 12 people wounded. Here just in the last, I don't know, two or three weeks, we, we watched as a Supreme Court justice nominee refused to define what a woman is based on the fact that she's not a biologist. You're saying, man, you've you got to dig really deep for these stories. No, you just have to look back over the last week's news cycle to find them. 
These things, are, these things are happening all around us, and they're only, they're only increasing in, in the way that things are going. And I'm just simply saying the list of madness, because that's what it is. It's madness in our world, and the list of uh, madness in this culture could just go on and on and on. We could be here all night talking about crazy things that are happening. So here's the question. When are we as Christians going to wake up? When are we going to wake up from our slumber and acknowledge that the answer, listen, the answer isn't and has never been a conservative politician. The answer has never been another boycott. The answer is not a conservative social media site. The answer isn't some other thing that perhaps we sometimes as Christians put our hopes and our dreams in. The answer has always been and will always be Jesus Christ who we proclaimed as the Savior this morning and we do it each and every service. I thought about this. The world is much, more, is much more passionate about pushing their agenda and ideology than we are about preaching Christ, and therein lies our greatest problem. If we could, listen, if we could get as riled up about, about Christ, if we could get as passionate about Christ as the transgender movement is about promoting their lifestyle, we could see revival. We could see people being saved and churches growing and, and uh, having to build new buildings and having to buy new buses and having to start new Sunday school classes. We, we'd, we'd, we'd find people going to the mission field in and, 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 and greater numbers than they are. If we could just get a, a, just an, a little bit more of the passion that they have than, uh, than what they have for what they're promoting. In our text, Solomon describes a wicked man. The wicked man loves his wicked behavior and he lives as if God isn't real, and even if he is, he doesn't care. The God in heaven doesn't care about man's wicked life and choices. Solomon acknowledges the wicked man in our text, but he also reveals the existence of a holy God. The very things, now think about this, the very things the wicked man finds pleasure and revels in are the very things that a holy God hates and will judge, make no mistake about it. And just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse number 14. The wicked man too can appear to be sharp and kind and innocent and harmless. Can I say this? Listen, you cannot, we cannot, I cannot judge a wicked man merely by his outward appearance. A lot of wicked men dress like I'm dressing. They wear suits to work. They're clean shaven. They comb their hair nice. They, they, don't, they don't give off the, the, the vibe that they're a wicked man. They drive nice cars and they live in nice neighborhoods and yet their heart is abominable and it is wicked. Solomon here gives us some insight into how we can discern and how we can, number one, identify a wicked man. We find that in verses 12 through 15. And Solomon gives several identifiers in this text. Several things to, to look out for because, again, if you think that you can just look at someone and determine, yeah, he's wicked, no, he's not wicked, she's wicked, no, she's not wicked, just by looking at their outward physical appearance, you're, you're sadly mistaken. Solomon spends some time to tell you, listen, if, if you want to know if someone is truly wicked, if they truly have a wicked heart, then, then look for these things in their life. Notice, notice the list. Number one, he says this, that a wicked man can be identified by his speech. A wicked man can be identified by his speech. Verse number 12, a naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. It's interesting that this is listed first. See, most often the first indicator you will get that a man or a woman is wicked is the way that they talk. 
the way that they speak, the things that they talk about, the things that they, uh, that they, that they share in a, uh, in a conversation. The word forward, it means perversity. And so you can know if a man is wicked when he speaks, listen, when he speaks in a perverted, profane, vulgar way. Profanity, crude talk, innuendo, crass speech, and inappropriate humor are all evidences of a man having a wicked heart. Better be careful the way you talk because it's an indicator of some things. The Bible tells us that Jesus said in Luke 6 and verse number 45, he says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. And then Jesus goes on to sort of describe what he's saying here when he, when he says this, for of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. So when a man begins, a woman begins to talk about wicked things, you can safely assume that, that those wicked things are dwelling and abiding in that man or in that woman's heart. That's where those things are. And that the mouth is just revealing what is inside the heart of a man or of a woman. So if you're wondering, how do I know if someone is wicked? You know, I work with a guy and, and you know, he seems sharp, she she seems impressive. They, they, they seem to have their ducks in a row. But I'm not so sure if they're, if they're really born again, if they're really a Christian. I don't know much about Well, listen to the way they talk. Listen to the things that they talk about, the words that they use, and the, maybe the, the humor that they, that they offer, the jokes that they tell. And, and uh, you listen for those sorts of things, and you can get a pretty good idea of, 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 of the state of a man or a woman's heart. Solomon says he can be identified by his speech. Notice, secondly, he can be identified by his body language. Look at verse number 13. He says, he winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. You know, there's obviously verbal communication. And then there's nonverbal communication. I, um, I'm thinking to myself of, you know, as a, as a boy growing up, and I can remember riding in the back seat of the car. And I can remember, you know, being there with my brothers. I had two brothers, uh, one older, one younger, and we'd start to goof around, and we'd start to do, you know, we'd get on my parents' nerves, you know, that sort of thing. And, and my, my dad didn't have to say anything. All he had to do was look in that mirror. And there was a look that he had, right? He didn't say a word. But it was obvious that if we didn't straighten up, we were going to be in trouble. He'd do that in church, too. <laughs> We'd, we'd be down the row a little bit, and we'd be messing around, coloring, drawing, doing whatever. And he'd just, he'd just do one of these numbers, you know. You know, he'd just lean his head in. He'd look. And we knew we better, we better straighten up. We better get our act together. Sometimes teachers have the ability to do that. I've seen teachers not, not even, never say a word, but as they're, as, as, they're, as they're teaching, they pause for just a moment. They look at a certain student until that student realizes, hey, he's looking at me, she's looking at me, and they get their act together. Those are, those are nonverbal forms of communication. And we all recognize and understand what is being stated there. Though no words are coming out of the mouth, the look, the, the, the posture, the body language is clearly revealing, hey, you better get your act together or you're going to be in trouble. Well, Solomon reveals that a man can carry himself in such a way as to reveal that he is wicked without saying a single word. With the wink of an eye, 
with the speech of his feet, with the hand gestures that he makes. He says all of these communicate something to us. All of these are nonverbal, but they are communicating a very clear message. So as you and I live this life, we, we can discern some things by the way someone talks. And then you can further discern, perhaps by body language, the things that they wink at, the things that their feet carry them to, the gestures, perhaps, that they make with their fingers or with their hands. They teach us some things. They reveal some things to us about a naughty man, about a wicked person. Most thirdly, he can be identified by his desires. The Bible says, frowardness is in his heart, verse 14. He deviseth mischief continually. What is a man dreaming and scheming for? Some men dream of getting married, having a career, starting a business, becoming a father, retiring someday, getting better at their golf game or buying a new hunting rifle or, you know, getting a new boat to go fishing in. You know, some, some men, that's what they're thinking about. Uh, getting, getting a promotion, getting a raise, that's what they're dreaming and they're scheming for. But you know this, there's some men who are dreaming about other things. Crushing the person who stands in their way. They're dreaming perhaps about immorality. Maybe stealing their way to success. Humiliating someone who is in front of them. Lying to their superior. And the list could go on and on because the heart, listen, the heart controls the issues of life. These plans or desires begin inside. They are born in the heart before they ever mature to fruition. So a man begins to think about what he could do. A man begins to plot. He begins to make some plans. He allows his desires to control him, the lusts of his heart, the lust of his flesh, the pride of life. Those types of things are, are things that he lives by and he dreams and he schemes and he desires for some things. He plans for some things. But notice, fourthly, he can be identified, according to verse number 14, by what he plants. It says in the end of verse number 14, speaking of the wicked man, the naughty person, he soweth discord. Sowing, of course, is a, is a word that describes the idea of planting, right? A farmer goes out into the field and, and he takes the seed and he begins to plant it in rows so that he can get a harvest someday. And he's planting seed and he's planting, that's what they do. At this time of year, the farmers are getting into that, and they're, uh, they're planning for the harvest at some point later this year, and so they're, they're busy planting seed right now. Some men, some men plant seeds of kindness, of gentleness, seeds of love and generosity and sacrifice and good deeds. And yet Solomon says a wicked man, instead of sowing things like this into the ground, he's planting seeds of discord. Everywhere he goes. If every time a man is around, there is a quarrel, there is a contest, there is a dispute, or there's a general lack of a sense of peace, you can be certain that the man is one who, is, who, is one who plants discord. He's sowing discord everywhere he goes. There are people like that. It's like every time they walk into the room, you know, you roll your eyes, you're like, oh, they're back. It won't be long before we're arguing about something. 
Won't be long before this room that had a general sense of peace in it is up in arms and people are frustrated with one another and people are at odds with one another. Won't be long because, because that individual is someone who is known for planting seeds of, of discord everywhere he goes. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. The wicked man, that's what he does. He can be identified by what he plants. But notice lastly, he can be identified by his judgment. Look in verse number 15. The Bible says, therefore shall his calamity Come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. Most men think that they've gotten away with most of their wicked and evil deeds, don't they? Solomon writes that eventually calamity, which is another word for oppression or judgment, is coming. Most men, by the way, most men don't broadcast their judgment to others. There are times in which someone is under the judgment of God, and yet they're not going to tell you about it. Sometimes we fall into this trap like David did. David wrote in the book of Psalms, he wrote about the wicked man and about, his, about some enemies. He said, you know, it just seems like they're, they're always in a good place. They're always thriving and succeeding. And, uh, and, and, and listen, it may have been because they hadn't gotten what was coming to them yet, but it may have been that they, they were getting what was coming to them, but they're not going to broadcast it. They're not going to walk in and say, you know, I've been living a really wicked lifestyle and God's, God's getting after me. No, most of the time, they're not going to let people know. Some of you, you've dealt with someone who, who maybe over time it's begun to come out, man, my life has been miserable, and yet you're sitting here going, man, you could have fooled me. I thought you were loving life. I thought you were enjoying the life that you were living. And yet, judgment does fall. It does come. It, it can be hard sometimes to know whether judgment has really fallen in some cases. But listen, you and I, here's what we must do. We must rest in God's promise here and in other places that he'll take care of things. Romans 12 and verse number 19, he writes, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God declares that when judgment falls, in verse number 15, when it falls on a wicked man or woman, it will be both swift and it will be severe. Swift, it will be suddenly, and it will be severe without remedy. Broken without remedy. So the wicked man, the wicked man, we're living in a generation that's full of wicked men. By the way, we ought not to revel in the fact, we ought not to revel in the fact that wicked men are, are, are headed for a Christless eternity. It ought to break our hearts. It ought to trouble us. It ought to wake us up and, and, and shake us from a sense of lethargy and cause us to want to go out into our community and to warn wicked men and women of the judgment that is coming. But understand this, this is what the Bible says about the wicked man. How can you identify a wicked man? Oftentimes he looks just like you and I look. Sometimes we fall into that trap and we look at someone and, oh man, he looks mean, he looks nasty, and he's one of the nicest guys you've ever met. We look at someone who's dressed sharp and who carries himself in a certain way, looks to be a professional, and he's one of the nastiest guys you've ever met. I'm just simply saying you can't always judge these things by outward appearance, but he gives us a list of some things you can look for. Speech, you know, the way he talks, his body language, what he's dreaming about, what he's planning for, what he's planting everywhere he goes. And certainly you can know him by his judgment. But notice, secondly, we, dis we discover not only the identification of a wicked man, but we see, secondly, the hatred of of a holy God. The hatred of a holy God in verses 16 to 19. Now I know this passage and, and really this point doesn't fit the narrative that many want to paint of God being full of just love and mercy only. But listen, you and I are wise to listen to the Bible before listening to any man. 
Now, what I'm saying is you could go into a lot of churches today, you can go into a lot of houses of worship today, and you would hear, you would hear someone every week, week after week, just simply talk about how loving God is and how kind God is and how gentle God is and how he just winks at everything and he's pretty much okay with everything and there's really no system in which he judges things. There's no standard of right and wrong. You can find churches like that. that, that that's, that's not a problem to find. What I'm saying is you and I are better off to open this book and figure out what does this book have to say than we are to sit and to appease ourselves and to appease our conscience by listening to someone who just simply tells us, you know, God's good with anything and everything. You know, regardless of accomplishments, pedigree, or popularity, let God be true and every man a liar. Understand this, God hates sin. He hates it. You know why he hates it? Because it caused his son Jesus to have to come to this earth and suffer and bleed and die. That's why he hates it. Because it it thwarted God's plan here on this earth. You see, God had a plan for this earth, and and, and God had a plan for fellowship and relationship with mankind. That's why God designed everything that he did the way that he did it. But when sin, listen, when sin entered the picture, and, and and it marred, it distorted, it destroyed what God had created. And therefore, listen, therefore God hates sin, all sin, every sin. But you know as well as I do that as we read this list, it does seem, doesn't it, that some sins are especially grievous and hated in the heart of God. It's not to say that he doesn't hate the others, but that maybe, maybe these are just a, a step above. Maybe these are just a, a little bit more troubling to him for one reason or another. As we read this list, we find ourselves identifying, don't we, and hating these sins in the lives of others. We're gonna go through this list and you're like, yeah, I, 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 I hate people that do that. We ought not to hate anybody. We ought to hate the sin and not the person, right? I I hate that type of thing being perpetrated in my life or in the lives of of those that I know and that I love. But you know what? I, I want you to know something. These sins can be subtle and difficult to perceive and detect in our own lives. In other words, I, I, I'm really good. I can see from almost a mile away, I can see some of these sins in the lives of others, but sometimes I have a hard time seeing them in my own life. Not only do I struggle sometimes to perceive and to detect these sins in my, own lives, in my own life, but I also have a hard time sometimes hating these sins in my own life. Sometimes I tolerate these things a little too much. I, I like them a little too much. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little too familiar with them. What I'd say tonight is if you see evidence of these things in your life, repent and ask the Lord to deliver you from these. It would be foolish. It would be foolish for us to talk about loving God while actively pursuing and participating in things that he hates. We're going to gather this coming Wednesday and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And I'm just simply saying if you find a shred of evidence of any of these things in your heart and in your life, you ought to, before you ever sit down for that supper on Wednesday night, you ought to get along with God and you ought to repent and get right with him. Lest you taste of the table unworthily. The Bible gives a list here. There's seven of them. He says, number one, a holy God hates the sin of pride in verse number 17. I I suppose some might disagree with me, but I do believe that pride is more than likely the root cause of all sin. Pride led Lucifer to rebel against God. So pride was the root and rebellion was the fruit. Pride led Adam and Eve to disobey God and to eat the fruit in the garden. 
And I want you to know something, that for every sin that we commit, it usually begins with words like, I can, I will, I should, I deserve, I need, I want. And what is the, what is the, uh, the common denominator in all those I? I, I, I. You, you read the passage that re- reveals the, the fall of Lucifer, and you will find seven times, I believe, he says, I, I will. I will, I will, I will descend, I will ascend to the most high. I will be greater than God. I will be like God. I will, I will, I will. Sin of pride. God hates the sin of pride. Let me ask you this question. Are, are all these that are found here, these six sins, yea, seven being an abomination, are these things listed in order of importance? I don't know that they are. I, I, I don't know that they are. But here's what, I, here's what I do believe. I, I do believe that this one is listed first for a reason. I, I, can't, I, I can't proclaim to you about the rest of the list. I can't make that determination because I, I'm not smart enough for something like that. But I have to believe, I have to believe God put this one first. And I believe it's because it's the root for all other forms of sin and wickedness. It's the sin of pride. Notice, secondly, a holy God hates the sin of lying. Verse number 17 The Bible says, a proud look, a lying tongue. You know, God is truth, and the devil is a liar, and he's the father of all lies, according to John 8 and verse number 44. The devil delights in dishonesty and deceit, while God hates and abhors this activity. The devil deceived Eve, didn't he, when he told her she would not surely die. A lying tongue, think about this, a, a proud look, a lying tongue is, 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 part of the, is part of what led to the downfall here in this world was the lying tongue of the serpent who looked at Eve and said, you shall not surely die. God just knows in the day that you eat of that, you're going to become like him. You're not going to die. A lying tongue got us into the mess that we're in today. God hates lying, so... Put this activity far from you. It ought to be put far from us as his people. Ephesians 4.25, the Bible says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I told you foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, and I hope I, I, hope I don't get in trouble for doing this tonight. But Thursdays is a family, my wife's family, we oftentimes get together and we spend time together. Megan, I should have checked with you before I said this story, but... Hopefully you can forgive me later. Just, just as the children, my nieces and my nephew, were getting ready to leave the house that night, they were at our home. Oftentimes we're at my in-laws' home, but they were at our home that night. And, and my, my niece, Mona, she had her hand in a bag of Skittles. I mean, the hand, the hand was in the bag. And her father looked at her and he said, Mona, is your hand in that bag of Skittles? And she looked at him, most beautiful face you ever saw, and she goes, no. And we're all looking at her. The hand is in the Skittles. I mean, we could hear the Skittles kind of getting moved around in there a little bit. And she had the audacity to look at her father and say, no. No, what's wrong with you, Dad? <laughs> no. Foolishness bound in the heart of a child. It's true, isn't it? Amen. We laugh and we chuckle about that. How many times do, do we have God who comes and confronts us and asks us, is your, is your hand where it ought not to be? Is your mind where it ought not to be? Is your heart where it ought not to be? And we look at him and we say, no, I'm good. God's trying to speak to us in a church service or in a meeting. 
God's trying to get a hold of us in some way. And with our hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, we look at him and we say, no, I'm innocent, I'm good. A lying tongue, God hates the sin of lying. And we put it far from us. Notice thirdly, a holy God hates the sin of unprovoked violence, according to verse number 17. He says there are hands that shed innocent blood. You know, there are times to fight and wage war. There are times to defend one's country. There are times in which you ought to defend someone more vulnerable than us. However, understand this, God hates violence that is unprovoked. God hates violence that is unprovoked. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. We often, don't we, in our minds, we think of the sin of abortion. Truly, God hates and abhors the sin of abortion, doesn't he? But I want you to know something. God hates any form of violence per- perpetrated against an innocent individual. Hands that shed innocent blood, God hates. Number four, holy God hates the sin of subtlety. Subtlety, look in verse number 18. In heart that deviseth wicked imaginations... To be subtle is to be sly, it's to be cunning, to be crafty. God hates the subtle heart that is constantly devising to do wicked and abominable things. This impure heart is a hard time thinking purely about anything. What are you thinking about? It's going through your mind. Sometimes we talk about the fact that we're we're glad that there's not some type of a, a way that people could know what's going through our minds. But isn't that problematic? Shouldn't we have pure minds? Shouldn't we be thinking in a pure manner so it doesn't really matter what people know about what we're thinking because we're just thinking pure thoughts? God hates the sin of subtlety. Notice number five, God hates, a holy God hates the sin of haste. Look in verse number 18. He says, In heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. It's one thing to sin while doing everything in your power to avoid it, isn't it? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you right now, you're, you're wrestling with something. The Bible talks about the sin that does so easily beset us, Hebrews chapter number 12. And some of you, you're wrestling with the sin that does so easily beset you. And I mean, it is a daily struggle. And I mean, you are, you are at war with this sin and with this, this, uh, the flesh that, that you're dealing with. And, and, uh, and, and I mean, you, you, you fall every once in a while and you, you, you fall into it, but I'm not without a major, major struggle in your heart and in your life. That's not what he's talking about here. No, he's not talking about someone who's actively working to overcome some sin in their life. That struggle is admirable, and I believe God gives mercy and grace to these individuals. What he's talking about, he's talking about someone who runs towards sin, who sees sin and wickedness on the horizon, and he runs to it. He gets there as fast as he possibly can. He can't wait to get his his toes wet. He can't wait to get into the filth and into the dirt and into the wickedness. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. They can't wait to get there, to revel in it. They plunge headlong into it. God hates the haste in which some plunge themselves into wickedness. Number six, a holy God hates the sin of an unreliable witness. Verse number 19, he says, a false witness that speaketh lies. I don't suppose too many of you have sat on a witness stand I've been a witness in a crime and in a court case. Maybe there's a few of you that have been a part of something like that. Think about how wicked it would be to, to swear, usually upon the name of God, while holding one's hand on a Bible that you're going to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and then to purposefully 
speak a lie, to purposely mislead those who are trying to get to the truth of the matter. Men's lies hang in the balance. Therefore, tell the truth. Don't be a false witness that speaketh lies. Finally, number seven, a holy God hates the sin of sowing discord. Don't plant seeds of discord between people who are family and people who are friends. Don't sit around talking about matters to people who aren't part of the problem and they're not part of the solution. Words like, I heard, and did you hear, and did you know, are usually dangerous ways to start a conversation, and we should reject this type of thinking and this type of talk. God hates this activity, and so should we. Now listen, the world is a wicked place. We know that. But sadly, sometimes wicked habits and behavior creeps into our lives as well. The wicked will face swift and severe judgment, according to Scripture. And the way to avoid this judgment is to abstain from wickedness. Understand this, God hates sin. He hates all sin. But there does seem to be some sin that he speaks so clearly about that it is unmistakable. These listed sins are hated by God even to, be, even to be declared abominable in his sight. And therefore, as God's people, we should be especially sensitive to these things in our own lives first and then in the lives of others who claim to be followers of Christ before lastly being a concern in the lives of those who don't know Jesus. We ought not to be all that surprised, should we, that unsaved people live like unsaved people. But what ought to surprise us is when saved people, born-again people, participate in these types of things. Because how can we, how can we stand up and say, I love God? Well, actively, knowingly, consciously, pursuing and participating in the very things that he hates. In my relationship with my wife, if, if I do things that she hates, she questions, doesn't she, my, my love for her. Well, I thought you loved me. I thought... I thought you cared about me. I thought that I was important and that I was special to you. Why then do you involve yourselves in these things? If a child loves his parents, his parents have laid down some rules and some, 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 some restrictions that have been placed in their life, it doesn't, doesn't really reveal that much that that child loves their parent when they're constantly resisting and rebelling against those rules. God has clearly laid down some things in this text that he hates. And it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for those of us sitting in this room here tonight who love God, who love his word, or at least we claim to, to find ourselves guilty of some of these sins and walking away from here thinking, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. And therefore, if God has spoken to your heart tonight, perhaps about the sin of lying, about the, uh, the sin of sowing discord, about the sin of pride, I suppose if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us, just in those three alone, Maybe find a place tonight to get alone with God, whether it's in this service or in our home or maybe first thing tomorrow morning before we start our day and repent of those things and ask the Lord to forgive us and to make us right with him. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.